We are in a series uh, that we're kicking off this weekend called At the Cross in the four weeks leading up to Easter Sunday and kind of preparing our hearts for what we believe God wants to do this year on Easter. Let me tell you quickly that we will be having two Sunday morning services on Easter, 9 and 11 o'clock, and we want you to already be gearing up to figure out who you're going to bring, and let's just, let's just fill this house uh, Thursday night, 9 o'clock Sunday morning, 11 o'clock Sunday morning. We're praying that, that dozens and dozens of people will come to know Jesus on Easter Sunday this year. But in preparation in our own hearts, we've been thinking about the attitudes that were reflected in that first uh, cross when Jesus actually gave his life for us. Pastor Farrell brought a message by the late Adrian Rogers to Pastor Andrew and I several weeks ago. And he said, you know, guys, th this message really touched my heart. I thought you guys might be blessed by it too. And after we listened to it, we decided, you know, the same attitudes that existed at the time of Jesus' crucifixion still exist to this day. And it may well be that we need to uh, examine our hearts as we lead up to Easter. We need to spend some time talking about where we are in our own journey in relationship to Christ and what he did for us on Calvary. Uh, there were attitudes like worship and, and grieving at the loss, but there were also some really negative attitudes that were going on there. So here's what we're going to do for four weeks. We're going to just turn the searchlight on ourselves, and we're going to ask ourselves, Lord, do you see any of those attitudes in me? And if so, guess what we're going to do? We're going to leave them at the cross. Doesn't matter what they are, we're just going to leave them at the cross. And we're going to come together on Easter Sunday, and we're going to celebrate in amazing kinds of ways. Throughout the series, we're going to be studying Matthew chapter 27. If you want to read that during the week and just kind of get that into your spirit, it's one of the most important chapters in all of the New Testament for Christians because it is the chapter that talks specifically about Jesus and his journey to the cross. Uh, and, and so uh, let's lean into it today. If you're, you want manuscripts, just go to info at bridgechurch.cc. Ask for the, the, the Goldsboro campus. Uh, uh, you can get those manuscripts. If you want to follow along today, just go to, uh, to Bridge App and, uh, and Event and find our campus. You'll find the outline and all the scriptures that we're going to share today. And this message is just packed with tweetables. So get your, get your Twitter up and get your Instagram up and your Facebook up, but make sure you use hashtag at the cross when you do so we'll all see what spoke to all of our hearts as we work through this idea of attitudes at the cross that in fact need to be left at the cross. You ready to get into it? Matthew chapter 27, maybe you brought a Bible or a smartphone, it'll be on the screens as well. We're reading from the New King James uh, in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 27. Here we go. Let's read it together. 1, 2, 3. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Let's first identify the scene and the key players before we get into breaking all of that down. But the scene, of course, is the morning after the Lord's Supper. He's been through his night of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will, not mine, be done. Jesus is arrested. Peter denies him. Uh, you know, all of those events that are so much a part of that original crucifixion scene that we'll unpack more and more as the series progresses that's the morning we're talking about he's had an all-night illegal trial they've come to the conclusion the religious leaders have come to the conclusion they want to put him to death but they don't have the authority to put him to death 
which leads us to the chief priests and elders, and they were the religious leaders of, of the day. They were the self-righteous of the day. They were the ones who kept the law perfectly and bragged about how well they kept it. In fact, they used to wear things on their foreheads called phylacteries, and, and it was the printing of the law, just so they could walk around and tell everybody, hey, hey, look at me, I keep the law right there all the time so that I'd be sure to get every part of the law right. They were the self-righteous religious leaders of the day. And Pontius Pilate, of course, was the governor of the region. Again, the Jewish leaders didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death. So they bring him to Pilate, hoping that he will give that authority and that Jesus, in fact, will be put to death in that moment. We're going to look at Pilate more in the series. But today, I want us to lean into that chief priests and elders group. I want us to look at that self-righteous religious leaders of that day and let me just tell you right now in case there's any thoughts in your mind otherwise religious people are going to be offended by this message you okay with that anybody okay with that i got two yeps i used to love to work on race cars in my college days which was more years ago than i care to amount to talk about uh, I had a really good friend, he was actually one of my college professors, Jim Hagen, that loved to work on cars as well, and we spent a lot of time building race cars and, and just fixing cars. We just had a blast doing that in the days before Kim and I were married, and uh, Jim was a really cool guy, but he was from the mountains of North Carolina, and while he got educated and was a college professor, he was still pretty rough around the edges, you know, one of those Appalachian mountain boys. And, uh, and one year, he said to me, Jim, why don't you come to Chimney Rock with me? Have you guys ever been to Chimney Rock, North Carolina? Beautiful historic site. If you've never been there, it's worth going. Well, back in the day, there was a race that took place up the face of Chimney Rock. It was a two-mile stretch uh, of 15-mile-an-hour curves, and one at a time, sports cars would race up that mountain, and, and the winner uh, would, would, uh, would usually break uh, two miles in two minutes. That's averaging 60 miles an hour on 15-mile-an-hour uh, pin, uh, pin curves. And so it was an amazing kind of race. And he said, Jim, let's go to Chimney Rock. Some of my friends are working in the pits of a race car. Let's go work on the car. And so I said, yeah, let's do that. You get me out of school, and I'll go with you. And so we went to Chimney Rock, and, and we got there. And on the way there, Jim said to me, you know, uh, Jim, you know, my friends are are good guys. Don't misunderstand me. They're good guys, but they're a little rough around the edges, and they're not exactly your church-going type. So it might be better if, if you not tell them you're a pastor right up front. It, it might just kind of set them on the edge. And so if it's all right with you, I'm just going to tell them you're one of my students. It's okay. Well, all right. That's what you want to do. That works for me. And so we got there, and, and i got to be honest with you. <coughs> he he kind of played it softly because they weren't a little rough around the edges. This was the roughest group of dudes I'd ever spent any time around in my life. And I worked construction for a while, if that gives you some perspective. I mean, these guys were cussing every other word. They're telling crude jokes right and left. They're drinking one beer after the other. And so I decided it was probably wise that, that we don't tell them I was a pastor right up front, okay? First day, 8 o'clock in the morning, we're starting to work on a car. Somebody offers me a beer. And I said, no thanks, I got orange juice. Appreciate it, man. And we went on working on a car. A little later in the day, hey, man, you want a beer now? I said, no, I got a Coke. That's all right. Just drink my Pepsi. I'm, I'm cool. And so we just went on throughout the week. The, the morning of the race, one of the guys named Chris came to me. I'll remember it as long as I live. He came to me, and he said, uh, dude, um, I don't know what the deal is with you. You don't smoke, cuss, drink, or chew, or hang around with girls that do. What, what is it with you? And I told him, you know, I'm just I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, okay, oh, wow. I, I, I guess I kind of saw that coming. Okay, well, tell you what, let's not tell the rest of the guys until after the race. We want to keep their head in the race. That's okay, that's fine. And so that we had the race, and, and after the race was over, we are having a big bonfire and a cookout that night. And, of course, everybody's having a good time, and they're all breaking out the beers again, and, and I'm still drinking my Pepsis, and, you know. And Chris gets up in the middle of the crowd and says, guys, guys, I need you to understand something. Here, I need to tell you something. And everything gets real quiet. And he said, I, I, want you to, I just want you to know. He looked at me and he held his beer out. And he said, if I was going to go to church, I'd want to go to one that had a preacher like Pastor Jim. Sir, he said, you are the real deal. And every one of the guys raised their beers and said, let's raise a glass to Pastor Jim. He's okay. Can I tell you to this day, I'd rather hang out with a bunch of cussing, drinking guys than some of the self-righteous, judgmental, holier-than-thou Christians that I've known. And again, I said this message is going to be offensive to some religious people. Religious people hear that, and they think I've stepped over the line. But I need you to understand, I didn't step over the line. I stepped right into the middle of the line that Jesus defined. Because that's where Jesus lived. He lived doing life with the sinners. And he was criticized for it. He was called a wine-bibber and all kinds of mess. He caught all kinds of grief about hanging out with sinners. And he gave all kinds of grief to the self-righteous religious leaders of the day. So let me take it just a step further, okay? I had a lady come to me one time and say, Pastor, what does it mean to be a Christian? I mean, it has something to do with going to church and reading your Bible and choosing the right religion. But, but beyond that, I'm just not sure what it means. And I said, well, my answer might surprise you a little bit. I said, ma'am, Christianity is not a religion. It's a real-life relationship with God himself. And she said, I kid you not, she said, whoa, cool. <laughs> she had no clue what I was talking about, but she thought that was cool sounding. I guess some of you are thinking, Pastor Jim's lost his mind. What's wrong with the religion? I thought I was a religious person, but let's just make sure we understand the definition of what religion is before we go any further. Okay, can we get a definition? Then we've got it to go on the, on the screens. Here's what, here's what religion means. Read it with me. One, two, three, go. Man's attempt to please God by adhering to a set of rules and regulations. Does that sound like Christianity to you? Please say no quickly. That word religion is from the Latin word religio that literally means to tie or to bind together to put in bondage. Hear me, guys, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear these words. Jesus did not come to put us in bondage. He came to set us free. He came to give us life, and that life in all its fullness. So in the time we have this morning, you know, hoping my voice will hold up. By the way, I feel fine just as a voice thing. Pray for me. Uh, let's just learn the difference between a religion, Christianity as a religion, and Christianity as a relationship. The good news is we don't have to go far to find answers because Paul addressed this issue very directly in the earliest days of Christianity 
when he wrote his letter to the church at Galatia, we now call the book of Galatians. So kind of get in your mind, if you will. We're going to lean into this study a little bit for a few minutes. Kind of put yourself in what is now modern Turkey. That was the region of Galatia in those days. Paul had started a cluster of churches across that region, and he would start a church, get it established, turn it over to a young pastor. He'd move on to the next place. He'd start a church and, uh, and, and get it going and turn it over to a young pastor, and he'd move on. And he had just continued that journey, plant, planting churches all across Galatia, and then he moved on to other places, to, to Corinth and other places, and all the letters that you see him writing in the New Testament are letters that he's writing back to the churches that he started and he moved on from. And so uh, sometime after Paul left the cluster of churches in Galatia to go plant churches in Ephesus and Corinth and other places, a group came uh, called the Judaizers. And those Judaizers joined the church. They were Jews who had accepted Jesus as Messiah, but they still held on to the law. And they were upset about Christians who were not obeying uh, the Jewish law. In fact, they taught that being a Christian was not about uh, just having a relationship with Jesus Christ. They taught that, that, that being Christian was about Jesus plus law plus rituals plus regulations. Let me say that again. Christianity is not about having a relationship with Jesus, according to these Judaizers. Christianity is about, you want to say it or you want me to? Jesus plus law plus rituals plus regulations. Well, Paul gets word of what's going on back there in Galatia, and so he writes them a letter to correct it. And that's what the book of Galatians is all about, Paul writing back to correct the problem that's been created by these Judaizers. You guys tracking with me? Do your heads like this? You're tracking with me? A little Bible study going on this morning that's got some deep applications in our hearts. Now, please understand Paul's background. Paul was a Pharisee before he came to Christ, he, which was the chief sect that kept the laws better than anybody else. He dedicated his life to not only keeping the law, but to wiping out early Christianity. It was Paul, Saul, before his name was changed, that, that threw Christians in jail, who was complicit with the deacon Stephen's uh, stoning to death. He hated Christians and everything they stood for until what happened? You even know what happened to him? Till he met Jesus. And when he actually met Jesus, everything changed. And this, this philosophy kind of fell apart when he came in contact with the person of Jesus Christ. That encounter set him on a journey and, and ultimately led him to become the most effective missionary of his time and one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. So you can imagine that Paul, who has been set free from the bondage of Pharisaical legalism, got to keep the law, killing people who don't get it right kind of person, the one who's been set free from all of that has now learned that the churches he started and introduced people to Jesus are drifting from the freedom they found in Christ back toward the bondage of religion. Anybody want to guess how Paul's feeling? Hello, are you out there? He's ticked. He's mad. He's not happy about this at all. Before we move on with the study, can we just stop right now and admit that there are a bunch of plenty of Judaizers around these days? Come on. Is it true? Kim and I led a church in Chesapeake, Virginia for 25 years, started it 
led it for 25 years before we moved to uh, to Goldsboro a couple of years ago, and uh, and very much like the bridge, very much like our church here. One day, uh, one of our church members came to me and and told me about playing back at, uh, racquetball at the Y that week, and I wondered why he was interested in telling me that story. But he went on to say he went to the Y, and the guy he was going to play with. Uh, didn't show up and so the manager said hey well I got this other guy over here wants to play you can I partner you two together he said sure why not and so they got together they met decided they'd play a game of racquetball very quickly in their conversation they discovered they were both Christians the other guy not our member but the other guy almost immediately began talking about these modern churches that play rock and roll music dressed just any old way in the sanctuary. Sure, these churches are getting big, but there's no way those churches can get big without the pastor watering down the message. And after he waxed eloquent for a few minutes while they played, he finally said to my friend, our church member, so, where do you go to church? <laughs> he said, I go to one of those modern churches. <laughs> He wanted me to hear that story. He wanted to know what he had heard out there. And can I tell you right now that when he told me that story, my mind immediately went to Chris and Chimney Rock many years before. And I thought, I've got a seeker guy toasting me. I've got a religious guy roasting me. And I'm kind of glad to be where I am right now. Let's get into Galatians. Let's see if we can get a handle on why I'm glad to be where I am and where I hope you're glad to be where you are. And if you're not there, my prayer is that before we leave here today, you'll take that step. That faith will not be a religion for you. Your relationship with Christ will not be based on Jesus plus rules, plus rituals, plus regulations, but it'll be based in an intimate relationship with him. Paul points out four problems. We're going to do it very quickly. Four problems with treating our faith as a religion instead of treating it as a relationship. Let's lean into it. The first problem we have to encounter that Paul tells us about is that faith as a religion is a different gospel. It's not the same gospel. Now hear me. Here's the thing that makes this so important. For every letter that Paul wrote to every one of the churches, to the church at Corinth, to Ephesus, to Colossae, all the letters he wrote to all of the churches, he always spent some time in the first chapter saying, I thank God for your partnership. I thank God for you. I pray for you with joy. He says all that kind of stuff. He doesn't say that to the church at Galatia at all. Chapter 1, verse 1, he just introduces himself. Hey, this is Paul writing to you. And then he gets right into verse 2. Let's read it together. Verse 2 through 7. Here we go. 1, 2, 3. So the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to whom be glory forever and ever. Just a general greeting, uh, you know, amen. And then he hits it. He says, without any... You know, love you guys, hope you're doing okay. He just says, I am, oh, come on, you can do better than that. Put a little pathos in it. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. 
That word deserting is, is an idea of, of changing sides, of moving from this side to that side. He said, I don't get it. Why you were so ready to just dump what you found in Jesus, turn it away, get rid of the freedoms, and buy into the bondage. I'm shocked, he said. I've shown you how to be free in Christ, and now you're considering abandoning the simplicity, the gospel? Don't you understand that that's a different kind of gospel? It's completely different. That's not what Jesus came to do. What did Jesus come to do? He told us. Luke 4, 18, 19, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's not like bondage to you or freedom. Somebody say freedom, quick. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's what worries me, is that the Galatians weren't the only ones. I dare say some of you in this room have, have been tempted to desert because the pressures, quite frankly, from the Christian community can be profound to try to pull us away from the simplicity of freedom in Christ into the bondage of keeping the rules and fulfilling the rituals and dressing a certain way and acting a certain way and looking a certain way as if that's the measure of whether or not you are on, uh, whether you are in love with Jesus, whether you have a relationship with him, Paul, saying, your life was transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And you started out excited about being in a relationship with him. You were on fire. You were blown away by his love. And now you're drifting to a place where it's more important to keep the rules and the rituals than it is to maintain a freshness in your relationship with him. Paul wanted them to know, and I want you to know, but the end result, the end result, the end result of making that choice. Did I say the end result? Every road has a destination, and the destination of making that choice is that you have chosen a gospel different than the one Jesus brought. No matter who told you otherwise, the scriptures are clear. You've chosen a different gospel if it is Jesus plus rules plus rituals plus regulations. Which leads us to the second problem. Faith as a religion brings confusion. Galatians chapter 1, verse 7. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ because you've allowed yourself to be influenced by this perverted gospel, this different gospel. Now you're all confused about what the truth really is, which is anything other than the simple gospel idea that Jesus came Gave his life for you to have relationship with you. Can I tell you two of the, the most common confusion points that I've seen? I, I've been around the, the church and the body of Christ literally all my life. My mother took me to church. She told me I was 10 days old. The first time she ever took me to church, she took me to a holiness church. I grew up in the holiness tradition. I know very well the the, the, the legalisms that quite often accompany so many religions, you may surprise you, but the two largest groups in our church uh, in Chesapeake were Catholic and Baptist, and we found out that there was an awful lot of common ground about guilt-based religion from those two groups too. We think of holiness people as being legalistic. Well, guess what? Every group has to deal with this human reality, but there's a couple of confusions that come. You tell me if you've ever uh, addressed them or had to deal with them, because I still see them around. Confusion number one is religion provides a false sense of measurement. 
a false sense of measurement. In other words, if I do something wrong, I feel, somebody say bad. If I do something wrong, I feel bad, so what do I do? So I do something good to balance it off so that I feel better about myself. And, and that's okay, but if you, if you take that approach to your faith, your relationship with Christ, then eventually your faith gets reduced to a list of do's and don'ts. I don't cuss, drink, smoke or chew or hang around with girls that do. Therefore, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm sorry. The devil doesn't smoke, cuss, drink or chew. Okay, he hangs around with girls that do. But <laughs> he's not a Christian, right? I just and, and here's where I need to warn you guys. Maybe you need to lean into this. Maybe I need to whisper this one. If you allow yourself to go down that road, it is only a matter of time before you will begin to judge other Christians on the basis of whether or not they are keeping your favorite rules. Hello? Do they raise hands in church or do they not raise hands in church? Do they clap in church or not clap in church? Do they dress up for church or do they dress down for church? Do they do this or do that? Or do they not do that or not do that? Before you know it, guys, when you reduce faith to a system of measurements, the idea of an intimate relationship with Jesus always gets lost in the shuffle. I heard this story one time about a priest, a pastor, and a telephone lineman talking about prayer. And the priest said, well, I believe that the best for prayer position for prayer is kneeling and the pastor said well ah the best position for prayer is hands raised toward heaven the lineman said best praying i ever did was hanging upside down from a telephone pole <laughs> when you put it that way guys why would anybody get drawn into that junk well that's the second point of con of confusion there's a false sense of measurement that comes, but there's also a false sense of security that comes from a Jesus plus rules kind of approach to faith. If we start believing that we get enough things right, then we must be right. If we get enough things right, we must be right with God. We start creating a checklist of things to check off, and as long as we checked off our list, we're good to go. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. My parents were religious. I'm second generation. Check. I attend the coolest church in town. Check. I serve in one of the ministries in church. Check. I serve in kids' ministries. Double check. Check, 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 check. <laughs> Pastor Jim baptized me himself. That's a get-out-of-hell-free card if there ever was one, right? Check, 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 check. By the way, we're going to do a baptism at the end of April. If you haven't been water baptized as a believer, let us know. We'd love to include you in that service toward the end of April. Get a Connect card, go online, let us know somehow. Stop by the VIP table, let us know. Paul sees that stuff starting to happen in Galatia, and he says, Stop! Whoa! What are you doing? These Judaizers have gotten you way off track. You need to stop listening to these guys, he said. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. But if even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you. What do you say? Let him be eternally condemned. That's pretty strong stuff, wouldn't you say? 
Paul's saying, don't listen to these guys. They're preaching a different gospel, and that different gospel brings confusion. <coughs> and anytime somebody comes and preaches a different gospel to you than the one that I brought to you by authority of God, then you need to run away from those guys as fast as you can run away from those guys. Judaizers brought a Jesus plus rules plus regulations plus rituals form of faith to them. And Paul said, what's wrong with you guys? We have to guard our hearts so that we don't make the same mistake. The third problem that's created is faith as a religion focuses on externals. It focuses on externals. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, would I not be a servant of Christ? You see what he's saying? He's saying if your faith becomes about rules and rituals and regulations, then you have to ask yourself, who am I trying to please? God or the men who made the rules and the regulations? Men look at externals. God looks at motives. Why did you say that again? Men look at the externals. God looks at the motives. He's saying, if you get your focus wrong, then you're going to find yourself looking at externals. You're going to find yourself saying, did y'all hear how pretty I sang the other day? Did y'all see how, how well-dressed I was at church the other day? Did y'all see how much I put in the offering the other day? You hear how powerfully I prayed the other day? Nothing wrong with singing, nothing wrong with praying, nothing wrong with giving. But God doesn't care what you do as much as he cares about why you do what you do. Man's looking at the outside. God's looking at the intent. He's looking at the motive behind it. 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord said to Samuel, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Am I saying Christianity doesn't care how you live? Somebody say no, quick. I'm not saying that. I am saying that Christianity is about living for an audience of one. His name is Jesus Christ. And if there are men that don't like it, then men have a problem because I'm living for an audience of one. His name is Jesus Christ. And here's what he said, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Nobody's suggesting it doesn't matter how you live. I'm suggesting to you that you go beyond what you do all the way to who you are and more importantly, whose you are. Otherwise, faith becomes a religion which is a different gospel that brings confusion and only focuses on externals, which ultimately leads us to the fourth biggest problem of them all, and that is faith as a religion blocks grace. And let's come to agreement on one thing, if nothing else, all day. At the end of the day, grace is how we're saved. Amen? Grace is how we're saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 can't be much clearer than this for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves it is a gift from God not by 
works, rules, rituals, regulations. It's not Jesus plus works. It's just Jesus. Why? So nobody can go around bragging on how much I did. I can see us getting to heaven if it's based in works. And, and me and Luke standing there. And Luke saying, well, here's what I did. Well, how come he gets in? Because he did that and I did this. And then Kim steps up and says, well, yeah, but I did that. Oh, man. Well, I didn't know you had to do that much to get in. No, you didn't. You did enough to get in. I mean, we would start competing with each other over who did the most. That's just what human beings tend to do. And we start getting jealous because somebody didn't do as much as we did. And they still got in. Maybe I didn't have to do so much. Before you know it, it's all falling apart on you. And that's why, ultimately, it's not about works. It is about grace. Hey, here's what I want you to hear, okay? Uh, and this may come as a surprise to some of you. I don't know. I've got a chart to help teach this to you. But uh, there are only uh, two faith systems in the entire world. D do you know that? Th there's only two. And some of you are sitting there thinking, well, no, wait a minute. There's, there's lots of them. There's Christianity, and then there's Islam, and there's, there's uh, Hinduism, and Buddhism, and Confucianism, and, and there's all kinds of uh, animism, and there's a bunch of isms out there. There's all kinds of, no, no, no. There's only two i got a chart to help you see the difference between them. Chart number one recognizes that there is a gap between God and man. And every faith system on the planet, every one of them, other than Christianity, says man is doing his best to get to God by doing works. If he does enough works, then maybe he can close that gap enough then when he finally gets to God, God will say, you did a good job, come on in. Some of the faith systems out there says you get more than one shot at it. If you don't get it right in this life, you'll come back in another one and another one and another one until you finally do get it right. But that's what they all say, is that man is doing everything he can to close the gap between him and God because there's a God-shaped void in all of our hearts and so we're working hard to be good enough to finally get there. Well, here's my question. If you stand before God on the final day and he's prepared this perfect place called heaven, why on earth he, should he allow an imperfect being like you and me in there and mess it up? The, the, please don't say, well, I did, I did some bad stuff, but I did some good stuff, and I, and I think I did more good stuff than bad stuff, so, so maybe I'll, that's not the answer, guys. That's not going to cut it. That's not, that's not going to get you in. The second chart is the only one that works, the only one that's true, and that's ultimately man is not trying to work his way to God. God is chasing after you with everything in his being. Did you know that? Every turn, time you turn your back on God, God starts wooing you back to him. Every time you thumb your nose at him, he starts doing everything he can to get your attention to remind you of how much he loves you. He's the, he's the shepherd that left the 99 sheep to go find the one that was lost. He's, the, he's the, 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 the bride who lost one of the 10 coins in her dowry and emptied the house to find that one coin. He's the father scanning the horizon for the prodigal son, just hoping against hope that he'll come home. That's who our God is. It's not us trying to close the gap to him. It's him beckoning us to close the gap. And how does he do that? With grace. It's his free offer of 
His riches at Christ's expense, grace that closes that gap. And then are there works involved? Sure, but they are in response to grace. God reaches us by grace, and we respond to Him out of gratitude, out of love. I want to be faithful to God, not because I have to, because I get to. I want to be faithful to Kim. I want to be faithful not because I promised her, but because I promised him. You see what I'm saying? <coughs> it's not a way to, <coughs> to get a relationship with God. It's because he gives us the opportunity to have a relationship that makes us want to respond in loving kinds of ways. My life becomes driven with this desire to make him proud. To have him look at my life and say, that's my boy. That's, that's my girl. Yeah, that's, that's one of mine right there. That's my peeps right there. It's, a, it's an act of thanksgiving for the free offer of grace that he's extended to me. And everything that I do just comes out of that heart of gratitude, not out of a trying to earn something that I can't earn no matter how hard I try. Paul, Paul got that. That's why he said in verses 13 through 16 of Galatians 1, For you've heard of my previous way of life, how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. But God did what? Called me by his grace. Why? So that I might preach among the Gentiles. Now, Paul, Paul was, he was one tough dude, I'm going to tell you what. Once he knew that God had <coughs> given him a gifting and a calling to preach to the Gentiles, he went across the known world uh, preaching to the Gentiles. And sometimes they received him and sometimes they didn't. When they did receive him, he started churches. And when, when they didn't, uh, quite often they stoned him and left him for dead. And guess what he did? He'd get up, brush himself off, go to the next town and preach again. Why? Because he had this grace. You see what he said? It's because God called me by his grace. And because I've received grace, I can't wait to tell as many people as I can. I don't tell people about Jesus because it's a way of earning my way to heaven. I tell them because I found grace. Guys, when you get that. I don't have the words to tell you. But when you get that, you will never be religious again. When you finally get that, and the spirit of the Judaizer starts tugging at your heartstrings, back to that confusing measure, that confusing standard, that confusing security, you'll say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going back there. Because I've found what it means to be free. And I want the world to be free. One of the things that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is we're going to be giving you little business cards that are invitations to our Easter services. We've got them in packs of 10. We're going to be giving to you. We're going to just give you as many as you will take. We want you to give them away like candy over the next four or five weeks. Uh, but we don't want you to do that. We don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. Please don't do that because you feel obligated to do it. I'm not sure it's going to count in eternity if you do. Well, pastor said we should, so I guess I will. Hope nobody sees me doing it. 
but out of this heart of gratitude for the grace that's been extended to you, you can't wait for other people to find grace too. You found a place where they can come and meet Jesus, just like Saul did so many years ago and changed everything in his life. You may be here this morning. Whatever it is that drew you to this place, whatever caused you to be in this service today, you may be sitting here right now realizing that, that for you, Christianity's been a lot more about rules and regulations and rituals than it has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that, that brings healing and hope and health and freedom and liberty. Maybe, maybe you're realizing sitting here right now that you've been caught in that trap and I believe everything in me that God sent me here to say to you, you can be free. You can be free. You can be free. Just focus on the reality that grace is a free gift that God has given you. And when you do, you will find yourself praising God and responding to Him. Galatians 1.23, they heard the report. The man who had formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. They knew who Paul was. They knew what Paul did when he was still Saul. And they knew that he became who he was because of grace. And what did they do? They praised God because of it. They said, you know what? If God can do that for Saul, he can do that for me. He can do it for everybody else. I got to close. By the time I got to the end of the week, in that chimney rock hill climb i told you the pit crew was was toasting me here's to pastor jim what i didn't tell you is that the next year i went back to the race not in the pit crew just went back to watch and while i was there i ran across chris it didn't take long before i knew he wanted to talk with me about something and we find a private moment he said, Jim, you know, I started thinking after you left that I wanted what you had. So me and my wife went to a little Methodist church and we gave our lives to Jesus. And now I'm trying to show these guys there's a better way to live. Guys, we live in a world that's not impressed by our rules or our rituals or our regulations but they are desperate to fill the God-shaped hole in their hearts. And they're looking for somebody who has a real, intimate, passionate relationship with Jesus that ultimately defines how they live, but not because of what they do, but because of what Jesus has already done. Let's pray. Break our hearts. Lord, for any drifting into legalism that happens to us all, show us that ultimately that's a different gospel that just brings confusion and fights among Christians about which rule is right and which regulation is right and which ritual is the right way to do it. All the while, there's a world around us desperate for grace. So speak to us, empower us, teach us.
draw us into an intimacy with you. And forgive us for making it about externals. Keep your heads bowed for just a minute. I'm not going to keep you any longer, but I do want to let you pray. We'll give you a chance to pray. Prayer team will be here in the altar. Maybe you need to pray with somebody before you leave, but at the very least, would you pray this simple prayer with me today? Jesus, I need you to be at the center of my life. I embrace your grace, your free offer. Forgive me for making this thing about externals, about rules that men have created, rituals and regulations. Remind me of your love right now and fill me up all over again. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me first and unconditionally. Now, would you help me to love the people around me the way you love? Father, you know who's praying. You know exactly what's going on in their lives, their families, their marriages, their kids, their workplace. Show yourself real to all of us, Lord God, and let us not only enjoy the blessings of Christianity as a free relationship with you, but help us to impact the world with the good news and the gospel. In Jesus' name.